Welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm uh, Sean, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Dan. And today we have a special guest, uh, someone who's been on the uh, podcast uh, before, our good brother, Andrew Warwick. Um, and today's topic, um, we're going to be going through the timelessness of God and how we think about it in regards to the incarnation. And what prompted this episode is, um, it's, it's um, what prompted this episode was James White's response to Andrew's article about James White teaching a heretical view when it comes to this topic. And we're not going to have a, a direct response per se, um, but because there is just a lot of general confusion around the topic, uh, we wanted to go through um, through some of the important points and make sure that those are solid. And uh, specifically, we wanted to address the idea that um, a lot of this is just philosophical speculation on our part. Uh, it's not biblically based. Um, so we want to go through a lot of the scriptural proof texts that teach what we believe. And uh, we also wanted to demonstrate that this is what uh, we would understand from the light of nature. And it's also uh, just historic Christian teaching. Um, uh, if somebody was looking for a more direct response to uh, James White's um, response to Andrew, I, I know you posted a comment on the blog post, correct, Andrew? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we also made it a Facebook post at the time, but the easiest way to get to it is just look at the blog post. Um, that was more specifically dealing with the uh, charge that uh, it splits the person of Christ when you're uh, understanding Matthew 24 to be in reference to his human knowledge and not his divine knowledge. So that's addressing that. Um, and I also have a more thorough treatment of what uh, one person in two natures has historically meant in my blog post called a history of confessional Christology. So those will be more uh, uh, relevant for that particular issue. Excellent. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll, uh, we'll begin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So ju just to expand slightly too. So uh, again, this is more of a general uh, treatment on the topic of the incarnation and how Christ remains immutable and the incarnation, which helps us to understand uh, other passages, such as Matthew 24, once you understand that there's no change in the uh, divine nature. And this is what we do for other texts, too. Like, uh, for example, Isaiah 38, where it if you all you had was Isaiah 38, it might look like God didn't know the future there. Like God thought Hezekiah was going to die, but then he ended up not dying. Uh, but we learn from other places in Scripture that uh, God knows the future exhaustively, and those help us to to have parameters for how to understand those passages. So right now is what I, I'm trying to trying to do today is essentially establish the parameters, which uh, uh, in particular uh, is the timelessness of God in the incarnation. Because once you understand that the divine nature stands outside of time, that completely removes any possibility of change uh, in himself and his awareness, uh, anything else. Um, and I just think that might be a helpful topic to treat. So some of this stuff, I'm sure James White would even agree with. Uh, so again, it's not particularly against him. It's about the doctrine, expanding upon it, and and what the implications of it would be once we have a firm grasp of what it means for God to be timeless. Um, so with that said, uh, I want to start us off by looking at a excerpt from Augustine's, though this is from his uh, Confessions. Uh, I got a translation by Albert Outler, um, and this is from chapter 11. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is to show, like, this isn't a new doctrine in the history of the church. The church has understood this for a very long time, and we've had um, many of our best and brightest thinkers saying much on the subject, and I commend them to, to you, and Augustine is certainly one of them. Um, so he begins by uh, showing the objections to uh, creation ex nihilo. So these are unbelieving pagans who think that creation extends eternally into the past. And, and here's what he says. Now are not those still full of their old carnal nature who ask us, what was God doing before he made heaven and earth? For if he was idle, they say, and doing nothing, then why did he not continue in that state forever, doing nothing as he had always done? If any new motion has arisen in God and a new will to form a creature, which he had never before formed, how can that be a true eternity in which an act of will occurs that was not there before? For the will of God is not a created thing, but comes before the creation. And this is true because nothing could be created unless the will of the creator came before it. The will of God, therefore, pertains to his very essence. 
Yet, if anything has arisen in the essence of God that was not there before, then the essence cannot truly be called eternal. But if it was the eternal will of God that the creation should come to be, why then is not the creation itself also from eternity? So these are what the objectors are saying. Uh, it's many of the same things we hear today uh, as far as, um, you know, what was God doing before he created the earth? Was he just going through aeons and aeons of time and then finally just started to decided to create? And these people recognize rightly, hey, the will of God is part of his very essence as the first cause because his will is but the means by which he causes things to be in the first place. Um, so if if he had to begin willing at some point, you'd need a first cause before the first cause to make him begin the will. He'd have to have a will before he had the will, and uh, and that gets you in a, in a logical mess. Um, but Augustine responds to this. He says, those who say these things do not yet understand you, wisdom of God, light of souls. They do not yet understand how the things are made that are made by and in you. They endeavor to comprehend eternal things, but their heart still flies about in the past and future motions of created things and is still unstable. Who shall hold and fix such a heart so that it may come to rest for a little and then by degrees glimpse the glory of that eternity which abides forever? And then comparing eternity with the temporal process in which nothing abides may see that they are incommensurable. It would seem that a, it would see that a long time does not become long except from the many separate events that occur in its passage, which cannot be simultaneous. In the eternal, on the other hand, nothing passes away, but the whole is simultaneously present. But no temporal process is wholly simultaneous. Therefore, let the heart see that all time past is forced to move on by the incoming future, that all the future follows from the past, and that all past and future is created and issues out of that which is forever present. Who will hold the heart of man that it may stand still and see how the eternity which always stands still is itself neither future nor past, but expresses itself in the times that are future and past? Can my hand do this, or can the hand of my mouth bring about so difficult a thing even by persuasion? Uh, so his argument here is the objectors understand wrongly in their imagining God as being eternally in time, passing from one moment to the next moment, and eventually coming up with a will to create the earth. But we have to understand that time, the created reality, is over here, and God is over there. He's outside of the created reality, outside of time altogether. The beginning and the end are forever before him. It's not a new phenomenon that he's now newly experiencing just because he chose uh, for time to begin at a certain point in time. He is the eternally present I am. So we should have no doubt about this. This is a high doctrine. Uh, it's, it's hard to understand because we're creatures. We live in time. That's how we think. Uh, so we must do what Augustine says here and try to still our heart and prevent it from projecting creaturely things back onto God when we seek to understand these things and, and what it truly means for God to be eternal. Uh, we know that God is his own act of aseity, his own act of self-existence, from which all his works flow. And since it's an infinite act, it requires no additional exertions, no additional wills. It's all contained and flows from his one uh, act to be the great I am. And so therefore he stands before and above all notions of time. Since he and his acts are eternally performed, none of his works in time, including the incarnation, affects his immutability. But because this might be strange sounding to some people, and again, it's definitely difficult to grasp, I want to spend time proving the doctrine. So uh, there are three ways we can do this. Uh, as Sean says, we want to actually deal with the, the scriptures here, which I will survey a, a good number of them. Time prevents me from going into any one of them in a great amount of depth, but I'll at least show you where this doctrine comes from. Um, so, uh, there'll be direct statements of scripture dealt with, which indicate that God is timeless. And, uh, there also be, uh, at least one passage dealt with where we can see that, uh, good and necessary consequences of other attributes of God that scripture says he has would result in God being timeless. Uh, and thirdly, I want to also show that this is true from the light of nature. So what we can see from, uh, from the things that are made. Uh, would reveal that God must be timeless. He must stand outside of time. 
And the reason I want to do this in three ways rather than just give you the scriptures and leave it at that is because I want to show you that this truth is actually so basic that not only does it come uh, to the front through these direct statements that indicate he is timeless, but it also comes from the other attributes that he has. And even nature itself shows that this is true. This shows that it's not only a true doctrine, but it's a very basic doctrine. Uh, it's very uh, integral to who God is as our creator to be outside of time. Um, as Van Til himself said, that uh, eternity is the exclusive property of the creator and uh, temporality is the exclusive uh, uh, quality of the creature, which means God doesn't have any temporality in himself as God. And uh, briefly, uh, butt in there for a second, this is what we would expect from Romans 1, right? Um, yes. That uh, it's been clearly perceived ever since the foundation world, uh, namely uh, his uh, eternal Godhead and power, or his eternal power and Godhead. Um, these attributes of God have been clearly perceived, so we would expect nature, it to be fairly obvious from nature that this is the case. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we can definitely see that here, and I, I hope I can show that today. Um, so starting with uh, the scriptures, one that I brought up in my article uh, was John 8, 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I, said unto, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So uh, obviously this is him referring to himself as, as, the, as our Jehovah God. Uh, but it also indicates the timeless nature of being the I am, the, the ever-present. It's, it's said directly in response to a time-related question, which is, uh, did Christ exist back in the day of Abraham? And here's his answer. Before Abraham was, I am. So it plays off the temporal question to show that he not only was, but he is before Abraham. Uh, this is, again, it's both an identification with the divine name and a play on the necessary consequences of that divine name. Uh, he, he doesn't even say before Abraham was, I was the I am, but simply I am. Um, and uh, I don't want to pass by this without saying that Christ is saying this during the incarnation. He is saying this in his incarnate state. It's not simply that uh, it, it, it's, it's not like he was a timeless being and now he's no longer a timeless being. He is saying in his incarnate state that he still is the I am. And the importance of that statement too. Jesus elsewhere says that unless you believe I'm the I am, you'll die in your sins. Yes. Um, so you can see that timelessness, the timelessness of God, the aseity of God is really crucial in a gospel sense. If you don't embrace this, then you're undermining um, the God of the gospel. Mm. Um, and, and Jesus, I think, makes that very clear when he's talking to the Pharisees. Yeah, yeah, because it's not enough to say you believe in a lowercase g God. You have to understand uh, what God you're talking about. Of course, that doesn't mean that uh, baby Christians are going to have a a perfect grasp of all these things. Yep. And, and I would never say that. Yep. Um, but, but it, it, we, we do understand that, that God is creator. We are creature. He doesn't have creaturely properties. Um, yep. nor do we have the properties of the creator. Uh, he's different. He's set apart from us. Um, so other scriptures likewise speak of God in a present tense manner in the future and past, such as revelation one, eight, I am alpha and omega, the beginning and the ending. So more than simply was the beginning and will be the end, uh, although that's true from the perspective of creation. He, he, more than that, he is the beginning and is the ending. Psalm 90 verse 2 likewise says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Again, present tense, or at least as close as the biblical Hebrew can get to present tense. Uh, I won't go into the nuances of that. But it's, it's very clear from that substantive phrase, thou God, it's, it's a present tense reality. Um, but anything, uh, anyways, before anything was created, and in fact covering all periods of time, past and future, and covering all of eternity, God simply is God, outside and superior to all. Time is his creature. Uh, further, 2 Peter 3 verse 8 says, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So if all he said was that a thousand years was like a day to God, some might say, well, oh, he's just been around for a while, so it seems like a short period of time to him. But it's more than that. He doesn't only say that a thousand years is like a day. 
but a day is like a thousand years to God. So a short period of time is like a long period of time to him. And a long period of time is like a short period of time, which shows that our measurements of length and brevity have no relevance to God. He stands above all of it. Uh, a short period of time and a long period of time are equally before him. Um, and most importantly for our topic at hand, uh, however, those texts that show that even God's actions in creation, wh while they are performed in time and they're not co-eternal with him, uh, nevertheless, they are, uh, we might say, efficiently caused by his act outside of time. In other words, from eternity, he's poured forth the energy, the exertion for those moments to be in the moments of time that he decrees them to be for. And so thus they're said to be done before time uh, or from the foundation of the world. Um, and this is a necessary truth if God lives outside of time, because you can't point, pinpoint a time where he began to will and exert his power from anything he decreed. You can't say like, oh, he, after a certain amount of time, he willed this to be if he's outside of time. Um, uh, after all, his will is the power by which all is made. He simply speaks and it's done accordingly. And since his will is eternally the same, his power to perform each act is eternally engaged to accomplish it for the moment and duration he decrees it to be. Uh, for example, uh, in a text directly related to our topic on the Incarnation, we see Revelation 13, 8 says that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1, 9 likewise says, Christ saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And the NKJV even says before time began there. Uh, and of course, Ephesians 1, 4, which says, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So many people will attempt to t take these texts as simply teaching the, the sureness of, of God's plan. It's, it's very sure, um, as if he's looking down the quarters of time and he says, yes, this, this, this will happen. But it, it simply says more than that. It, it doesn't say that the lamb was simply planned to be slain from the foundation of the world. That's adding to what the text says. The text says he was slain from the foundation of the world. And I don't think we have any reason to, to take the other sense unless we've already determined and we need to import this idea of God walking through time like us and seeing this event as, yeah, that's still far off from me, but, uh, and I, but it's sure in my sight. But scripture doesn't give us that view. Scripture presents us with all moments of time being equally present before him at once. So it, it's not like in the mind of God that these things uh, are likewise 2,000 years in the future from him when he de decrees them to be or anything like that. Um, so <clears throat> anyways, um, if, we, if we take the biblical view, the, these things make very sense. That you can say in a real sense, yes, God was already slaying his son on the cross uh, around the year 30 A.D., um, before time was. He was already putting forth the energy to uphold everything that was in that moment and his uh, slaying of his of his own son. Um, he's, he's just as present with our moment in time as he is present with a moment three uh, billion years uh, from now. As, as Augustine says, to, to, quote him, uh, to quote him again here, um, he does not will one thing now and another later, but he wills once and for all everything that he wills. Not again and again, not, not now this and now, now that, <clears throat> nor does he will afterward what he did not will before, nor does he cease to will what he had willed before. Such a will would be mutable and no mutable thing is eternal, but our God is eternal. All right, so that's the first section. The first section, just giving a brief view of, of the text of Scripture, which would indicate that God is timeless. And so moving on to the next section, uh, unless one of you all have comments. Um, the only thing I have, you know, talking about um, God's power and his acts, it's important, too, that we don't. Uh, I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm just speaking in general, but just that we don't um, distinguish God's acts from his very nature. Um, I think I've. I've seen that before where that's mm. been uh, taught that somehow God's action to do something is somehow distinct from his essence. And I don't think that's possible no, because um, God's will, his, his very omnipotence has to be involved in all of these things that he's doing, even that have temporal effects. Um, yes. So we have to be careful not to 
I guess you could conflate the effects with his acts and therefore distinguish them if you're not careful, but we have to make sure that his acts are still being seen as his nature doing the action. And, and there's no distinction there. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I had said before, his will is actually the means by which he does something. It's yep. not like he needs another force on top of his will. Yes. Uh, we see this in the creation accounts. He speaks and it was God said, let there be light. And there was light. Um, so they're, they're one in the, they're one in the same. There's that distinction between his acts and the effects of his acts, which I am trying to draw out here. Cause it's not like each moment of time, his effects is eternal with him or has anything in commonality right. with him, yeah. but the act by which he accomplishes those effects is identical with himself. It is part of the one simple God. His, his will to do things is identical with his, his uh, own being. Um, Okay, so next section here is uh, dealing with the necessary consequences from other attributes of God revealed in Scripture. Uh, and I'll keep this one brief for the sake of time. Um, Romans 11, 35-36 says, uh, Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. The Bible teaches God's absolute independence. Notice the four of verse 36 when it says for of him and through him. That's what that's doing is it's, it's a post positive. It's connecting this thought to the previous thought, uh, which is who is first given to him that it should be recompensed unto him or, or repaid back. Um, verse 36 explains why no one has first given to him and why he is dependent on nothing because of him. And, and the reason is because of him and through him and to him are all things. So there's nothing left. Uh, that he didn't create, that he could be dependent upon. There's nothing other than creator and creature. And since the creator created all creatures, he cannot be indebted to anything whatsoever. So the obvious question for our purposes is, is time something other than God? And the answer is, of course, it's something other than God, right? We, we, we go through time all the time and we're not, we're not pantheistically participating in God. Um, so thus he, he, he created it and thus he is not dependent on it, which means he's outside of it. He's before it, so to speak. Um, he stands outside of it and before it. Also the very nature of being outside of time means that whatever aspect of it was outside of time to begin with remains outside forever. And this is something I want to really stress because some people might on the one side of their mouth confess that yes, God is timeless in his being, but oh, then he, he became incarnate at a certain point of time. And the implication is that he ceased being outside of time. And that's not correct. Although we can absolutely speak of God entering in time, according to his human nature, it's not by anything that was outside of time, ceasing to be outside of time so that it can enter into creation. That's a very important distinction because if he, after a certain amount of time ceased to be outside of time, you would have needed time outside of time for that to be good. Uh, the question you should ask yourself is, how long was he outside of time for? It's a nonsensical question. Uh, to be outside of time means to be equally present with every moment of time, to be more, no more attached to or indebted to any period of time over against the other. So if God is ever outside of time, then he is always before and with every moment, past, present, and future. See, so he's not only omnipresent spatially, he's omnipresent temporally. So because it teaches he was at one point uh, n n not dependent on time, that means he never could be dependent on time and must be forever outside of time. So uh, nothing in God morphed itself into a creature. It rather, as the Chalcedonian definition says, the divine nature remains fully intact and unmodified. Uh, the act of incarnation creates the human nature of Jesus Christ, but it does not modify the eternal person who dwells in, who subsists in that human nature, in the flesh, or cause him to cease to exist in the way that he does. Uh, as the Bible says, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Present tense. Even unincarnate, he was still, uh, he still retained his divine nature and everything that goes with that. Finally, uh, I wanted to deal with the, the light of nature. So the light of nature teaches us that there has to be an unmoved mover. And we know that God is that unmoved mover. Uh, 
It shows us that in order for there to be motions, objects, and the like that constitute what we see around us, uh, something had to first cause them to be and put them in motion, give them the energy needed to do all that they, that they do. Well, the reason for this is obvious. Nothing begets nothing. If there was not a cause, we wouldn't have an effect. Uh, this is why atheism makes no sense. Uh, and so the universe and all the powers in it had to arise and begin to move from something. Uh, but the ultimate source of all things could not itself have been brought into being or placed into action because otherwise it would not be the ultimate source of things. Because if it was ever brought into being or placed into action, that means that something else had to bring it to be. Or you might try to say, well, it brought itself to be, but then it would have to be existing before it exists in order to make itself exist, which it can't do if it didn't exist yet. It's a contradiction. Therefore, the unmoved mover, whom we know is God, had to be eternally in the act to uphold all things, never having been brought into being or that state of act. And this is actually what the objectors to Augustine were starting to get at, but they, they failed insofar as they imagined that this was a, a temporal eternity when it's not. Um, no, it, it could not be that kind of temporal eternity, namely an, an infinite temporal past and infinite temporal future. And there are two reasons for this. First, because that would mean that time would have to go through an infinite number of finite successions. Notice that language, infinite number of finite successions in order to reach any given moment of time, uh, which is incoherent. We must remember that infinity is not a number that you reach after you stack a certain amount of finite things. The infinite, the in prefix negates uh, the, uh, the finitude of infinity, which means that there's no amount of finite things which could reach that uh, infinity. So uh, if there is literally an infinite amount of time in the past of us, then uh, what that would mean is that in infinity past, no matter how much finite past, it would never reach a certain point in the future, any point an infinite distance away from that point. But we would be an infinite distance away from infinity past. But we're here. If, if there's a truly amount of infinite past, you could have never reached any given present moment because it would have had to go through an infinite number of successions. Um, uh, it, it, but like we said, the very nature of infinity means no matter how many finite units of time you have, you'll never reach that infinite point in time. So it's a, it's a, it's a contradiction uh, in terms. Um, if, if, if it could reach a point infinitely far away from itself, that point wouldn't actually be infinitely far away. An uh, infinite past results in absurdities. So that's the first reason. The second reason, though, is even more fundamental, why we know that there can't be an infinite... Uh, past uh, of time, of finite units of time before us, uh, that God exists in. Um, the, the second reason is more fundamental because in order for the unmoved mover responsible for all movement and being, in order for him to be that, uh, it, he has to have the capacity of all possible beings, all possible creatures contained in that act. Christians have re historically referred to this as God virtually prepossessing all things, which isn't to say that like they were physically a part of him or that there's any commonality of substance between creator and creature. No creature was created ex nihilo, not drawing from God's substance and appropriating them it to themselves. That's not the case. But what it is to say is that uh, God, as creator of all things, has to have the capacity in himself necessary to create him, create them, excuse me, which is a no-brainer if he's going to create them. It's nothing other than to say the cause has to be sufficient for the effect. Um, he has all the power necessary to uphold all manner of beings that he'll, he'll uphold, and this is what it means for him to be the first act responsible for the effects of all things. Uh, so in this sense, as the creator of all things, he is virtually, which is to say causally, uh, uh, the prepossessor of all things. But since there's nothing to differentiate one thing from another that isn't already prepossessed by him as the infinite boundless cause of all, then there is nothing in the created realm that could possibly add to him because it was all created by him. You can't add to something if you're already prepossessed by it. And since time is one such thing that must be set into motion by him, it was pure act. 
it and all its moments moments are already prepossessed by him. Uh, there's no moment of time that could add to him that could give him a new experience of of consciously being in this time and now in that time because all that is in it, uh, all the power and everything that's behind it's creating and and to be what it is, it's already prepossessed by him. It can't add to him. You can't add to the infinite. Uh, so the consequence of this is he has to stand over and above the whole sequence of time before time was so he can't be like a creature moving through time like we do he's above it he's eternally possessed all of it it's eternally present to him and in his act which cannot be added to as the unmoved mover there's nothing in him to be actualized there's no potentiality to be actualized uh, thus all change including the change of time is impossible as the act says of himself he says for i am the lord I change not, Malachi three verse six. What could be? What could he change? Uh, to what could he change to that he is not already? This precludes us from thinking that there is any change in the second person of the Trinity in the incarnation, who is none other than the eternal, unchanging God. There is no change from God's perspective. He remains eternally the same. The only newness is the newness in creation, not in the Creator. Yeah, and. You know, expounding upon that some more, um, you know, the question has come up before, um, you know, does this mean that God became creator at the moment of creation? And then, you know, we have to use that distinction between the, the temporal creation that comes from God's power and his eternal nature itself. Does that mean that it, because we're coming at this from a, you know, a, a temporal point of view. And we would say, no, God has always been creator from his perspective because the eternal act of creating doesn't start at a certain point in time and then stop at a certain point in time because that would imply that God is bound to time. But his eternal act of creating is always, even now, from our perspective, if you want to use a time-bound uh, explanation, is still taking place because it's an eternal act that doesn't begin, that doesn't end. There's no... Uh, flow along a timeline in terms of the duration of the act it just is um, and so that uh, you know in terms of god's eternal acts we would speak of hit the act being eternal but the effect being temporal and god can do that being he is um uh, he is omnipotent and the first cause of all things um, i want to read some from uh, the puritan stephen charnock um, uh, some of his commentary on the psalms he talks about this in in pretty good detail so on psalm 90 uh, he says this he says whatsoever was the immediate cause of the world yet the first and chief cause wherein we must rest must have nothing before it if it had anything before it it were not the first he therefore that is the first cause must be without beginning nothing must be before him if he had a beginning from some other he could not be the first principle and author of all things if he be the first cause of all things he must give himself a beginning or from eternity. So he's establishing the eternality of God as the first cause, as the scriptures teach, and essentially saying there's nothing that comes before God, and, and therefore there's nothing that God is beholden to. And then in, uh, in his commentary on Psalm 102, as this psalm is interesting because it specifically deals with the creator-creature distinction as it relates to God's eternity and change in the creature. Uh, he says this, the creation begun in time uh, begun in time, but the will of creating was from eternity. The work was new, but the decree whence the new work sprung was as ancient as the ancient of days. When the time of creating came, God was not um, made ex nolente volenis as we are. For whatsoever God willed to be now done, he willed from eternity to be done. But he willed also that it should not be done till such an instant of time, and that it should not exist before such a time. If God had willed the creation of the world only at that time when the world was produced and not before then, indeed, God had been changeable. But though God spake that word which he had not spoke before, whereby the world was brought into act, yet he did not will that will he willed not before. God did not create by a new counsel or new will, but by that which was from eternity, Ephesians 1, nine. What he's saying here is God's will didn't change. God's will to create is it remains the same and continues to remain the same even now. Or this would imply a change in God, and therefore God would be temporal because time is a measurement of change, uh, and He would not be the eternal, uh, the eternal God that created the world. And the, these concepts are very difficult to understand because we're coming at this from the perspective of time 
bound creatures. We can only think in uh, along a timeline. We cannot project our minds into eternity and comprehend God as he is in that respect. So we have to speak of God as, as doing these acts continuously, producing temporal effects. And, and our minds can't wrap around that fully. Um, but this is the necessary consequence that we see in Scripture. If we believe that God truly cannot change and he's outside of time, all of his acts, which are one with his nature, must continue to be the same um, and not change. They don't start and they don't stop. The only thing that changes is the temporal effects um, of his eternal will. Um, so I think that's that is an issue um, that has been debated in, in Christian circles about uh, the title of creator as it relates to God, um, because, you know, we're struggling with that that time bound language that we are um, that we are bound to. Uh, and so we have to really unthink how we um, how we live and, and how we move in, in our timeline, because. Uh, we don't have the eternal qualities that God has. Um, so we have to be very careful in our language and and try to be as precise as, as we can. Um, but that's all I'll say about that. And you guys want to comment on that? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm of the opinion that there's a lot of the debates that we have relating to the nature of God and his interaction with creation that fundamentally just have the root in us doing exactly what you're talking about, which is projecting creaturely things back onto god uh and it's so natural for us to do because the only thing we have experience with is creation so i don't want to undermine that this is uh, a challenging thing uh it mm -hmm. takes a lot of mental discipline to, to yep. force yourself to to the best of your ability remove all notions of time and creatureliness one conceiving of god but once you do so a lot of these problems just fade away such as the problem of God becoming a creator at some point. No, he's eternally the creator because there's never a point of time when he began to be the creator. And this is the problem with open theism. It's it's predicated upon the notion that God must be in time. And therefore, if, you know, if, if these things are to be true that open theism teaches, he must be like us and changeable mm -hmm. and bound to time. That's really the fundamental difference between that heresy and Orthodox Christianity is yeah. God's timelessness. Yeah, remaking uh, the the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of corruptible man. Yep. Which, again, yeah. I'd want to point out, it's not only just corrupted man, but corruptible man. In other words, something that's capable of corruption, of change, of of uh, losing things. That's not our God. He's incorruptible. He has no capacity to be corrupted, both morally and in terms of the integrity of his being as well. Yep. All right. Anything you want to add? Yeah. Oh, uh, were you speaking to me, Dan? Yeah. Anything oh. you want to add? Um, no. Well, I guess um, one thing that I found helpful in thinking about um, the eternity of God was it's actually not appropriate to talk about before time. Like, we do it all the time. Um, we use, oh, well, uh, before uh, time God created or before. There's not a temporal before because there is no time before implies time there's a logical before obviously this logically had to happen before there would be time but there is no temporal um aspect um to the before when we speak of before time but i think at least this was the way i was thinking about it before i came to this realization i'm sort of importing a time into the before time so before there was time there was this time um, and that's yeah. where the, the before is coming in. But that's when we say before, we're not speaking that there was literally a time before time began. Um, we're just speaking about it logically. Um, yeah. And that was helpful, at least for me, in understanding the eternal, the eternality of God. Yeah, it, it's about his priority, not about there being a separate space of time before. Um, mm -hmm. As Gil said about that, like, uh, I don't recall his exact words, but he's essentially like, what we call uh, what is eternal as before time having, you know, no other means to speak of it because <laughs> there's no, because our language just fails us at, at that point. And yeah, scripture does this as well. So I think it's good and help for us to follow that mm -hmm. pattern because it does uh, effectively illustrate that. Yes, he's, there's no moment of time that was before him before eternity. It's all in a sense before, but it's all in a sense, not before in the sense of there's no time before the beginning.
it's like an ontological priority i guess you know time yeah, exactly. existence is really the quote before um you know or so god's acts in a sense happened before um you know time existed i think that's really what it's referring to is the ontological priority not like a you know a temporal priority yep all right so uh moving on to our next part here uh is just now answering the questions of how does the incarnation occur if it's not a change in god well what is it we've already alluded to answer some but i wanted to expand on it a bit more uh, the incarnation does not occur by any change in god but in God eternally willing to create in the fullness of time in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the human nature of the second person of the Trinity by his spirit, all three persons being eternally engaged to unite it from the moment of its conception to the second person. So as to cause him to subsist in it without anything in his eternal nature being added to or diminished from in this action. Indeed, the second person being outside of time altogether there is no time for any such change to occur in him, nor could the reality of his subsisting in a human nature from roughly 4 BC onwards seem new to him, who eternally had all such moments that he willed before him. It's a great mystery, but it's a reality that's demanded by both of the two, two books, the supernatural book and the book of natural revelation. It involves no contradictions and should not, and it should only lead us to glory with amazement before the absolutely unique and incomparable God. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, says the Lord. So that's how, that's the best way of speaking of the incarnation there. It's, it's not in any change in God, but it's a change in creation, him willing for uh, the creation of that human flesh and it's uniting to the uh, second person of the Trinity so that he now subsists uh, both in his divine nature and in a human nature without any change in him or any newness or novelty from his perspective. So potential objections. Um, I want to cover two issues some people might have from what's been said uh, so far. So the first objection would be a uh, confusion that makes each moment co-eternal with God. So it'd be someone thinking, okay, we've refuted the idea that the the universe is eternal in the sense that it goes back on backwards to infinity we know that's not true but what you guys are saying is that each moment is co-eternal with with god so it's not just time in general but actually each moment of time but that's not the case as we already started talking about we there's a distinction between the eternal cause and the temporal effect so god being outside of time and actively willing each moment of time does not change the fact that each moment is intrinsically nothing else but temporal. It's not eternal by his own will and his own decree. It only exists in itself for however long God eternally willed it to exist. So Christ wasn't, the human nature of Christ did not eternally exist. It only began to exist at a certain point of time and continues to this day. Um, so the fact that uh, all this is present for him no more makes those things eternal then one of us pausing a scene of a movie for an hour uh, would make that scene an hour long. The scene only lasts for as long as the scene lasted for, and our ability to see it for longer says nothing about the nature of that scene, but the nature of ourselves and the technology that we have in order to, to view it for, for longer. Uh, and it's somewhat analogous to, to God here. Uh, it's not that the things themselves are eternal, but because God is eternal and the act by which he upholds and causes those things is eternal, they're eternally before him, but they're still temporal in themselves, only lasting for the period of time that he decrees uh, for it to last. And again, I want to point back to his omnipresence. God is equally present with us here in Virginia, as he is with a saint in New York, as he is with someone out in China. That does not make New York the same distance as the space of the globe between China, New York, and Virginia. It doesn't make New York any bigger just because God is simultaneously present with all those locations. Likewise, God being simultaneously present with all these times does not make the times longer uh, in their existence uh, by the same logic. Uh, so that's the first objection. And the second objection would be uh, stemming from a confusion of what it means to be two natures in one person. Uh, they would think this isn't what we've described isn't sufficient for him to be one person in two natures. Uh, 
And this, I, I'm worried, uh, would come from some people who have a flawed understanding of what it means to be two natures in one person, uh, historically speaking, and 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 scripturally faithful. Uh, they're confused about this to the point where they cannot imagine that Christ becomes man while remaining one person without having a unique awareness or consciousness that leaves eternity is no longer there and now enters time. There's nothing in the Bible to substantiate that view. That's our importing our creaturely categories back into God. And I won't reinvent the wheel here. I, I do talk about this a little bit in my article on the history of confessional Christology, particularly towards the end when I talk about modern um, aberrations and how um, some Lockean views started to seep into the theology of some um, and how they conceived of these things that was not conceived like that before. Um, uh, but yeah, like, but suffice it to say, it's an imposition of modern ideas back onto traditional terminology and, and consequently not understanding it like it was traditionally understood, though they use the same words. Um, so they're understanding uh, those words to mean something that no one ever understood them to mean before, in which case they should just use different words and stop trying to pretend like they do stand in line with those. Just who be honest. Right? Be <laughs> honest, because it just it just adds to confusion. Um, some people say like, oh, we can, uh, you know, I want to make sure that my words are biblically defined. But if you're using a phrase that's external to the Bible to begin with, like the Chalcedonian definition, uh, then you don't want to use that language and mean something different from them. If what they said departs from what scripture means, then you want to ring the bell on that and stop using their terminology because you don't want to make people think you're teaching something unscriptural. If it really is in scriptural, stop using the language. That would be my my argument, because otherwise all you're doing is confusing people. Um, so, anyways, uh, that but this new this new way of thinking it's it's nowhere suggested by the Bible, and such things were always understood to be covered by old debates uh, when they talked about will and knowledge. When, when we talk about awareness and consciousness, that's very much modern terminology. It would have been covered by will and knowledge when when they uh, talked about it in the past. And those things were always understood to be properties of nature, not properties of personhood. Uh, in fact, the Sixth Ecumenical Council teaches against monothelitism, the idea that there's only one will in the human and the divine nature, and they call that a heresy. Um, so the, uh, the personhood of each member of the Trinity is not an extra substance, this extra self-awareness. Each person is none other than God, um, the same will, knowledge, power. And the distinctions between them exist only in their internal relations and not in any additional substance like a unique consciousness. Uh, the only difference between father and son is that the father is the father and the son is the son, period. That's how the Bible distinguishes to them. We need to stop adding this other stuff, these further distinctions that the Bible doesn't give us here and are made safe and say he's God uh, with, with unqualifiedly. He's the same God. So... Uh, are you saying that distinct centers of consciousness here are act is actually an unwarranted, unscriptural, philosophical speculation? That is absolutely what I'm saying. That is absolutely what I'm saying. We get charged with philosophizing a lot, like adding things to scripture, but really we're stripping things away. We're not adding things to, and we're only confessing what the Bible would make us confess or what's good and necessary consequences from what the uh, Bible teaches to the best of our ability. In fact, if you read the article I, I made on confessional Christology, you'll see that they they even started to they they had to basically redefine what the words had mean in their original philosophical context in order to make way for the biblical revelation. So rather than importing philosophical ideas into the Bible, they stripped the philosophical terms to fit the Bible. Uh, so it's actually the exact opposite, I would say, of what's going on when someone's imposing. Uh, these Lockean ideas of personhood back uh, back into our traditional terminology. They're they're refilling them with philosophical categories rather than emptying them. Um, but anyways, um, so to continue what I was saying, so they're the, they're the same being, but they're different relations. And once this is grasped, the idea that there was a consciousness that left eternity and moved into time will disappear, uh, as it must if we maintain that Christ had everything befitting a human including a human consciousness, which the cre creator-creature distinction demands is categorically different from 
a divine consciousness, if we want to even use that terminology. Um, I would prefer to just stick to the traditional terminology of will and knowledge. I don't think it adds anything helpful by speaking of, of, of those modern terms. Uh, but anyways, if you remained uh, God and man, as the Bible teaches, he must have what's proper to both without being violated. So there's no shift uh, with consciousness being removed from the divine being and entering into humanity. He has what's proper to both natures. Yep. And uh, to expound upon that a little bit, I want to talk about um, some of the technicalities around the incarnation. Like, what does it mean? You know, Andrew's using this terminology of subsistence and and things like that. So what does that what does that mean as it relates to the incarnation and how can we still maintain immutability of the divine essence with regards to that? Um, so Adonis Vidu, uh, in his recent work, The Same God Who Works All Things, with a book about inseparable operations of the Trinity, on page 179, he says this. In the assumption of the two, uh, in the assumption, the two natures remain extrinsic to one another, and this is not the last word. Although the human nature does not acquire the quasi form of the sun, it nevertheless acquires the sun's mode of existence and action. And again, Vidu is in context here. Vidu is trying to uh, discuss the reconciliation of like trinitarian agency as it relates to the incarnation and, and the assumption of the sun alone, as it as opposed to the Father and the Spirit. Um, but essentially, when we're talking about the incarnation, we're talking about the second person of the Trinity assuming this human flesh. And this term terminology of assumption um, does not mean a change in the divine essence. It's a taking on of something created to the divine, uh, to the divine mode of existence, but keeping those distinctions there in terms of nature. Um, if you look at our Confession of Faith, the second London Baptist Confession, chapter 8, in paragraphs two and three, I'll read um, some of each of those paragraphs. Paragraph two, it says this, the son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very an eternal God, the brightness of the father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. So notice that the, the language here is very specific. It's a taking upon. It's not a changing into. The, the language in the confession is very clear that there's a taking on of something um, in terms of, of an assumption while still being of one substance and equal with the Father in his unchanging nature. Um, and, and this is just the one person of the Son. I see this in paragraph three. The Lord Jesus in his human nature thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. And this is very important when we're talking about this, because um, we're still saying that the divine essence, the Son of God, in, in the divine essence, that mode of existence took on human form. But we're not saying that there was another person that existed, a human person or a created person that came alongside somehow later um, and was actuating the son's uh, human nature. Uh, it's only one person, and that person is just merely um, the divine logos. That's yeah. it. That's yeah, he, it. And that's very important to keep in mind. Yes, he, he's not a, a. The person of Christ isn't a new person built off of the human and the divine natures. He's the same divine, eternal person who takes yes. on a human nature. Yep. And I think that issue of understanding that is behind some of what we're seeing today because people act like when jesus is speaking or referring to himself as i he's referring to like some combination of both humanity and divinity rather than divine person subsisting in a human nature and therefore sometimes speaking only according to one nature or according to the other nature the person of christ in the incarnation isn't a new person who didn't exist before which is what you'd have to believe if you think is if you think that jesus is simply the combination of those two natures rather than the one eternal second person of the Trinity who is now subsisting in two natures. It's a subtle yeah. distinction, but it's an important one, and it's got consequences for not yeah, exactly. understanding it. Um, it. And it's like we have to kind of double speak in a sense, because Jesus did have to have some kind of personality, or he would just be, you know, just an empty shell, or as Dolezal has said, you know, a rational uh, soul and body. You know, it's just a, it's just an empty shell. There's, there's no, uh, no way that that, 
human nature can live and interact with the world. There has to be some kind of personality, but we just, we have to be very careful where we ascribe that personality. And that's in the person of the sun alone. Yes. Um, in, in terms of, of that, we're not historians. We're, we're very much against that. Um, I want to read some of Francis Turretin. Um, you know, Turretin is a go-to because he's written extensively on this, on this issue. I mean, he has whole treatise in his institutes on the incarnation um, and talking about Nestorianism, he was very helpful on the technical side on kind of working these things out. Um, in his Institutes on 13.4.9, he says, although the essence, on account of its perfect simplicity, it's talking about the divine essence, cannot be divided into parts, still because it is one way in the Father, to wit, unbegotten, agenitos, another way in the Son, in whom it is begotten, genotos, Another way in the spirit, on this account, the human nature could be assumed according to the one mode of subsisting, which constituted the one person of the Trinity. Thus, it could not be assumed according to the rest, which constitute the remaining persons, since these modes differ not only in reason, logically, but also in the thing, really. So it was only the person of the Son that took on uh, human nature. And, and this is where that unity of the natures takes place, is in the person, Uh Turretin also says this, he says, by this union, therefore, nothing else is designated than the intimate and perpetual conjunction of the two natures, the divine and human, in the unity of person. By this, the human nature, which was destitute of proper personality and was without subsistence, because otherwise it would have been a person, was assumed into the person of the Logos and either conjoined with or adjoined to him in unity of person so that now it is substantial with the Logos. So this is how we can truly ascribe actions that are done in his human nature to Christ himself, to Jesus, to the word, um, because he's acting according um, to his human nature. But it's not changing anything as it relates to his his divine nature, um, because he's acting according to his human nature. And we're just merely ascribing the action to the subsisting person, which is the divine logos. Um, and this, again, keeps us away from the Nestorian heresy, which taught that Jesus had two persons or two personalities, a created human person, as well as the divine um, Logos. And we can't have that. Like, scripture is very clear about this. It only speaks of Christ in the singular. John 1.14 is very clear that the word who John had already established was one with the Father, was God, assumed flesh. Nobody else did. And there's only one Christ that is spoken of throughout the scriptures um, so it must be the divine logos. That's the necessary consequence that we see uh, from the scriptures here. Um, and I'll return to it again. He gets a little bit more technical in terms of why we can't speak of Christ um, as it relates to two natures. He says, where there are two natures complete and they're substantial as well as their subsistential and incommunicable being, there are two persons. Now in Christ, there are not two natures complete as to sub, uh, subsistence and incommunicable. If in Peter and Paul, two singular natures constitute two persons, it does not follow that the same is the case in Christ. The two natures in men have incommunicability with singularity, but not in Christ because the human nature is determined to the assumption of the word to whom it is personally united. Nor does it follow that the word man is predicated equivocally of Christ and of us, but only that the word man is taken at one time specifically for human nature as it is predicated of Christ at another personally as it is attributed. To us. So I think what Turton is saying here is that in human beings, there are complete natures that are made complete by their persons. But that was not the same with Christ. Christ's human nature was not complete as it is with us. So the human or so the divine logos was what uh, completed that human nature. And so it's a very unique unit uh, unification of natures here that we don't find. But Jesus can still be said to identify with us because he is meeting all of those uh, demands of what human nature would constitute. Um, so we have to be very careful here when we're talking about these things. Um, but this allows us to maintain the immutable God because it's the immutable eternal word that is assuming human flesh um, and maintaining this mutable nature that Christ um, has assumed. So we can speak of those two natures as being truly distinct, yet Christ can truly subsist and complete that human nature without mixing with that nature. Um, and so, you know, th this is where I think people kind of fall off the train because they start to think, oh, you're you're kind of going beyond too far beyond what Scripture is saying. You're you're kind of implying that there are, you know, more philosophical reaches that you have to 
that you have to add. Um, and this is what we would say, really just good and necessary consequence. If X, Y, and Z in the scriptures must be true, then uh, then all these other things must follow necessarily if we're to maintain X, Y, and Z without mm-hmm. contradicting ourselves. Um, and we can use you know these understandings of person in nature um, as it relates to us to help us to someone understand how the assumption took place. But again, this allows us to maintain that Christ is immutable as the word um, while maintaining that, that Christ took on immutable human nature. Um, and we're, we're not claiming to have figured out all of these things. I don't think any Christian with a head on their shoulders would ever say that. But we believe that we can uh, speak to some of these things that we pull necessarily from the scriptures. And that's really where we, we have to, uh, where we have to go and where we have to stop sometimes too and say, well, you know, we don't want to get too far into speculation. We only go where the scriptures necessarily lead us to. Hmm. Um, so I'll stop there. Um, in turn, well, I'll, I'll just mention what Turton said about Philippians two, because this is also another sticking point because there are those who do think that Philippians two indicates some sort of real change in the divine logos as it relates to the assumption. Um, and so we have to be careful about that. Um, we've seen that, you know, already with, with uh, Dr. White, with the, the laying aside of divine prerogatives um, as it relates to the incarnation and the assumption. And we don't want to use that kind of terminology because a prerogative is not distinct from the divine nature. Um, mm-hmm. Well, all it is in God is God. If he lays aside something divine, he stops being God or he's not, he was never God at all. And we have all kinds of problems. Um, but Turretin and talking about Philippians too, he says this, uh, here also belongs the verb uh, ekonose, I, and you Greek guys, if I butchered that, please correct me, uh, which is not to be taken simply and absolutely as if he ceased to be God or was reduced to non-entity, which is impious even to think concerning the eternal and unchangeable God, but in respect of state and comparatively because he concealed the divine glory under the veil of flesh and as it were laid it aside, not putting it off, not putting off what he was, but by assuming what he was not. So he was assuming a human nature that he was not himself without changing his divine nature in, in that veil that created this veil of that divine glory, not changing it, but merely veiling it um, so that those around him, so that those that Christ interacted with weren't fried on the spot because no man can see God and live as the scriptures teach and no man has seen God at any time. Um, so we have to be very careful when using this terminology um, especially from Philippians 2, that we're not imposing any kind of change, taking this, this terminology of emptying himself or, or anything like that as indicating any change in the divine essence. The emptying was only according to his human nature. Take on the form of a servant was only according to his human nature in assuming what he was not. Um, so just some helpful uh, terminology there. You guys want to add anything to that? <clears throat> Yeah. Um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. There. I mean, there's a there's a lot there, uh, right? But I just want to emphasize for the for the veiling, right? The veiling veiling is something that occurs uh, for people outside, right? Externally, like when you veil yes. something, you don't destroy or change the thing as it exists in itself. Yes. In other words, if you lose knowledge, that's not a veiling. That's just losing knowledge. Right, and I just want right. to make that, that clear. In Christ Himself, none of His internal experiences or anything like that were at all impacted by externally veiling. In fact, He has to be veiling uh, Himself externally whenever He comes into the world, because the world cannot contain the infinite. They cannot contain it as it is Himself. It's it's not only just that no man has seen God, but they can't. It's not a visible phenomenon that can be seen. It can only be hinted at. It can only be. Um, indicated so even in the mount of transfiguration it's not as though the fullness of the divine glory was now visible because otherwise you would have not you would have been able to see it on the other side of the world uh, let alone just in that one spot that one one mount and again it's not a visible glory really altogether it's 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 not um anyways i I just want to make that clear because because yes there is a true sense in which the glory of god is veiled in the incarnation but it's not by anything in itself being changed. And that's something that really needs to be pushed hard because otherwise you can end up saying things that are very much like what uh, people who advocated the canonic heresy would say, uh, 
by just trying to avoid the terminology, but in substance teaching the same thing, which is a change in the divine nature. So we want to be careful not to do that. Avoid it, not the, those kinds of heresies, not only in words, but in also the implications of what we teach. Yeah, it, that's a that's a good point about veiling, because you can't veil something that is put aside, right, by an individual. Yeah. It, 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 the, the nature of veiling implies that that thing is there. You're just yes. covering it up. That's yeah. all you're doing. For others, not for, for yourself. For others, yes. Not <laughs> for the thing itself. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's that's a very important distinction to make. Um, yeah, because P Philippians 2 is a is a common passage that's used for um, this divesting of the of the uh, divine nature as it relates to the incarnation. Um, but we just have to be really careful of the language because we can get into dangerous territory and speak heretically very quickly. It doesn't take much. All it takes yeah. is uh, just a nuance on a word or we we imply something through something maybe we didn't say we omitted something we should have said as it relates to these things and we can very easily walk into heretical territory um with sometimes without even realizing it so it's just constantly refining ourselves and, and like you said andrew disciplining our minds that's really how we have to do this when we're coming to these christological passages that appear to show a change we just have to stop and and think about all of scripture and using the analogy of faith to help us to understand what these difficult passages are referring to. Amen. Anything you want to add, Sean? No, no, all very good. All right. Well, longer episode today, but when you were talking about God, you know, it, we just, <laughs> we just keep going on and on. We have to, in order to establish these things, especially like divine eternity. I mean, that, that's something that, um, takes a lot of of discussion but it's necessary we have to lay that groundwork we have to understand who god is in his essence in order to understand how he acts outside of time how he's acting as it relates to the incarnation so we have to be very careful about that uh to be thorough and to be precise um but thanks for joining us today you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net and if you're watching on youtube and have not yet subscribed hit the subscribe button and Hit that notification bell so you can be notified when we go live or new videos or content are uploaded. But with that, everyone, thank you for joining us today. And Lord willing, we will be back next week. Take care. Thank you.